Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are still in our discussion through the Gospels. This is Gospels part 67. Last week we saw Jesus use very provocative language where it it seems like he, on the surface, he's promoting maiming ourselves for the sake of righteousness with (laughs) cutting off limbs and gouging out eyes. But in reality, he was trying to show this dichotomy between It's much better to have a state like that if someone is crippled or have some type of disability here on earth than what your reality is going to be in Gehenna for those who do not repent and stress in the importance of the lengths you need to go within your own life and your own walk to pursue righteousness and walk away from sin, uh, not taking it in this hyper-literal way. Um, And then we moved on from there, him talking about promoting and pursuing saltiness within our lives and how saltiness represents a life that's free from sin. It's attractive to others. It has this quality and taste about it compared to the rest of the world and and things you experience. Healing and flavoring. I know, right? Yeah. Um, And then we got into him continuing to reiterate of not despising these little ones and him uh, confirming that through a teaching about a shepherd that has a hundred sheep and he leaves the 99 to go search out the one and how there's more celebration over the one that returns than the 99 who didn't go away. We had a very lengthy extended discussion about that and then kind of went off on a rabbit trail with the reckless love song and trying to make light of this parable because it's, it's used a lot in our culture today within the church. Yeah, and that whole the whole conversation about little ones, these little ones is so interesting and worth so much of your time and energy just to meditate on what all is being talked about. There's such good stuff. Now, it does kind of feel like we're going to switch topics here. We're in the the big tent of the community discourse. And so it's going to feel like it fits within that for sure. But it kind of sort of feels like we're just making a a quick pivot away from the little ones onto something else. And yet, a lot of what it's talking about and the point that's being made, etc., it actually does connect in, in, in a number of ways. So, it's really good. But let's go ahead and start reading. This is in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. You know what? I'm just going to read it, and then I'll talk about it. So, here we go. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, 
and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, uh, as as we mentioned, Jesus is seems like he's leaving that general topic about the little ones, and and he's moving on to address another aspect of life as part of the community. This is very good for us. Uh, and the question is, what do you do when a brother sins against you? And I'm just going to say right away, you can go, well, isn't that kind of sort of another way of finding a lost sheep? So, I mean, you know, there are connections. But in this particular story, parable, whatever, we have to recognize two very important things, Samuel. This is so important. The offender is a brother. Number two, the offense must be a recognized legal offense in Torah. Now, I don't know about you, Samuel. I know for me, people in general in the church in America all my life, they have looked to this section of Matthew as some sort of a guide or even a remedy for all sorts of situations and circumstances. Now, I'm not saying that that is necessarily bad. I'm just saying we need to just slow down a little bit and and acknowledge the actual context. Jesus is speaking of offenses that are beyond hurt feelings or you know differences of opinion or whatever it might be. These have to be things that are punishable sins as defined in Torah. And the parties involved must be within the community. And so, I mean, like, who are we talking about here? Well, Jesus is plainly speaking about Jews in Israel. But I think it's okay. It's, it's natural. It's right to extend this even to our community now, the, the local church, or you might think of all believers or whatever. So, so it does translate, but we got to see that context. It's actually much more focused, much more local than, than we often try to make it. Now, where does this idea come from? Where, I mean, just it's got to come from somewhere in the scripture, right, Samuel? Jesus is talking. Yeah. Back in Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 17, why don't you read that? You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. All right. Now think about what that is saying. Instead of staying quiet and harboring resentment or, you know, like actually letting that lead to hate, bitterness, whatever of your brother, you know what? You should go reason with them, reason frankly with them. And why? Because you might even incur sin because of him. You have to be active, proactive, trying to dissuade your brother, your neighbor from sin or you may, in fact, be held accountable. You become party to it. So, uh, this is what Jesus is talking about. It's a really big deal. Now, there's a lot to this, but I have to, I have, before I can talk, I have to make sure that people know what I'm not saying. 
Sometimes you can do that at the end, but sometimes it's such a big deal, you got to do it in advance because you don't want people getting the wrong idea, okay? So here's the thing. When we start talking through this Matthew 18 process, I am going to emphasize this idea of protecting the dignity and the reputation of the offender, the one who's doing the wrong, okay? Now, on one hand, this is an important tenet in Judaism, and I would say it should be in Christianity. It's the duty of every Jew or Christian. And, unsolicited commentary, we often fail at this miserably, right? We just do. But, I also need to be clear, I'm not talking about protecting an offender that is going to go on and hurt others. And, I mean, this has become almost proverbial, right? Think about the Catholic priest who is discovered to have abused young boys. Okay, we're not talking about keeping it quiet so that they can just keep doing it. That's not what we're talking about at all. So, there's an even greater tenet, an even greater duty in that case to make the offense known to whoever it needs to be made known to. That doesn't mean it has to be, you know, like posted on the internet, but you've got to protect potential future victims. This is an important thing, you know, and be careful, right? I mean, you better be right about what you're saying. So the text that we're discussing here, it's assuming the former case, the one where Look, it's not like if I don't say anything, other people are going to get marred and scarred and hurt forever. You know what I'm saying? This this is about the idea that somebody can repent, they can change their life, they can become a model Christian, and if we don't protect their dignity and reputation, they're never going to enjoy true acceptance back in the community. And you know what that's like. You've seen this in your life, I bet you. Their reputation gets destroyed and, and that's the scenario we're talking about here. The whole purpose of these steps is to bring a person back into right standing in the assembly. And so a sullied reputation isn't conducive to that. Does that make sense, Samuel? Oh, yeah. It's so good that Jesus is bringing up this tenet. I recently was reading something from the Midrash back in Genesis on the uh, situation between Judah and Tamar. Um, and how um, when Tamar gave the person who was trying to tell Judah about finding the harlot and putting her to death, the scepter and is it the signet ring? Mm -hmm. Um, In the Midrash, it says that she was weighing heavily on what to do because she knew that if she just outright said, like, who was the person who got her pregnant that his reputation would be totally destroyed. And so she sent those two items to him privately to uphold his reputation, even though that she knew that he was in the wrong. That's just so cool. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's the image of God. It's who we're supposed to be. And think about it. That's Judah. That is the line that Jesus came from. Mm Mm-hmm. Imagine if she had not done that. How does the story get complicated because of those actions, right? So yeah, Tamar is awesome. Just awesome. All right, so here it is. The Matthew 18 process, I don't think it's what you think it is. And I'm not saying 
any one particular person. I'm just saying generally you, right? So here it is. Step one. The one who has been offended, sinned against, whatever you want to call it, okay, that person must talk to the offender, the one who did the wrong, must talk to him directly and privately to point out their fault. And so you can see it. It starts out very personal. It's not legal feeling, right? And this is to protect his reputation, his dignity, to avoid shame, to avoid gossip. And if he were to respond to this positively, like he listens, he repents, well, you know what? Your investment returns a gain, and it's not a a loss. This is true not just for you, but for the entire community. You're probably better friends than when you started. And importantly, as he must repent, you must also forgive. But that's step one. But what if he doesn't listen? Well, then there's step two. Again, the one who's been wronged, the offended, must again talk with the offender, the one who did the wrong, directly and privately. However, this time, an additional one or two others are present. Now, I'm going to say this. Give me a chance to explain what I mean. This step, in a sense, is optional. And what I mean is, uh, this this gets at the general idea behind some of the things that Paul wrote. Um, Matthew, if you could... Matthew, I'm sorry. Must have had my son on my brain. Uh, Samuel, if you could read from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Yeah. So you see, Paul's point is, hey, you totally have the right to do these things, but we're the body. We're the, the, the people of God. Shouldn't we be willing to to suffer some wrong for one another? Now, again, I'm not saying Paul is saying you should never do this. I'm just saying that kind of attitude makes this optional. You you might just drop the whole thing, but pretending that you don't, now you can see because you're going to them with others with you, it now it starts to take on a little bit more of a legal kind of feel. This is a it's a further attempt Okay, this is important. It's a further attempt at protecting the offender, his reputation, his dignity, avoiding the shame, avoiding the gossip. But now we can see that there's much more of a legal nature of the offense because you see things like a charge is established. There is evidence and there are witnesses. Do you see how all those things sound legal, Samuel? Mm-hmm. Now, I've, I actually read a lot of things people were talking about. Well, what, is it, what does it mean when they say witnesses? Are they there to witness the fact that someone is making a charge against someone else? Or are they also witnesses to the offense? Okay, to be fair, it's a good question. It's hard to be certain. But I think it's much more probably number two that, that they are also witnesses to the offense because... How do you ever actually convict anyone of anything? Well, there would have to be two or more witnesses to whatever this thing is. So, I don't know. That makes more sense to me, but I'm just acknowledging the question. Whatever. Now, this, this whole idea about there's got to be two witnesses or whatever, just to make it clear, Samuel, how about you read from Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15? A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime 
or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Yeah. So do you see how we've moved from a single person making a charge, doing it privately, now we've moved on to a, a well, two or three people total doing this, right? So this is good. This is good. Now, it isn't stated explicitly the way it was in the first one, but there's, I mean, you just have to imagine there's the same positive outcome that is possible. The guy might go, shoo, boy, I guess if I got a few people here talking to me, maybe I better straighten up, you know, get this fixed. If they did, there'd be the same rewards. And importantly, if this person were to actually repent, then guess what? You got to make sure you're also willing and able to forgive. It's an important part. But what if he still won't listen? Well, then you go on to step three. And this is when, this is such a good one. (laughs) The offended, the one who's been wronged, must make the offense known to the assembly, the church. But here's where it gets a little bit weird. If you are imagining in your head someone standing in front of your local church congregation and throwing this guy under the bus, you have the wrong image in your head. Instead, what we see here, this make the offense known to the assembly, is informing the local, well, in in Judaism, it would have been the local judges of the assembly. In our case, maybe you've got, I don't know, elders or something like that in your church. But you're making the offense known to those who have the authority to do something about it if repentance is not forthcoming. It's not the whole body. You're not just going public with it. It's the church leadership, your local church, right? And even if, let me, no, I'm sorry, that's not right. Even in this, the offender is protected as much as he can be. His reputation, the dignity, no shame, no gossip, all that, it's still being maintained. But this is the final opportunity for repentance, the final opportunity for protection. Now, if we were Jewish and we were alive in the first century and all that, technically we're talking about the local Beit Dean. This is their their little uh, uh, judging body right there, what we would think of as like a local church, right? They're actually the local judges of the Jewish legal system. Now, we can, I think, in, in some right way, we can imitate this today, but you know, we got to exercise the appropriate kind of care and caution. Like the first two steps, we've got the same potential for a positive outcome. And importantly, if he was to repent, well, then you've got to be ready to forgive. But we're still not done. What if he still won't listen? And this this is important. I just don't think you see this in American churches much, if at all. But the fourth step is the judges or the leaders, the the authorities within that assembly may now declare the offender an outsider. You're not a part of this church anymore. You cut all ties with this person. 
And it, I mean, it's in a sense, it's like they did in Israel. You remove the sin from the assembly. And it's not just the local assembly, right? And this is the part where we really miss it. Let's pretend I go to a church, somebody's messing up, and people are talking to him, dude, what are you doing? You gotta get you gotta get this right. What are you doing? And he won't do it, and they finally kick him out. Well, leaders of one church need to inform leaders of all the other churches. Hey, this guy's been banned. Now, there's still no requirement to air this guy's dirty laundry. Nobody has to know what is going on, but they have to see that unambiguous and unrepentant sin must not be allowed to remain in the assembly, in the assembly, or switch around to different assemblies or whatever. There's and, and there's no need for people to be outright unkind or unfriendly, but they have to be recognized and treated as an outsider. You are not acting like a member of the body, either local or general. And this is the entire assembly, all churches that would participate in this as much as as is possible. Now, even in this, there is still a mercy for this guy. They still aren't actually put before judges, like in our case. And the hope is that this ban will somehow be enough to motivate them to repent, which is the whole point. And again, if he was to finally repent, guess what? You got to forgive. Even though he has seemed willful and, and obstinate, eventually comes around, okay, you got to be willing to forgive that. Now, just to reemphasize, we're not talking about offenses where it's potential future danger for others. We're not trying to do that. But for those who they've messed up and there's a chance to protect their future standing in the community, we need to try to do that as much as we can. So that is the Matthew 18 process, but I'm going to say it's it's re-looking at it and and making it more appropriately uh, assembly God-like, as opposed to a lot of what I've seen or heard about in my life. So, there's that. That makes sense, Samuel? I think so. Um, I guess I'm just wondering if people are potentially struggling with this idea within the assembly that there seems to be a limit. Um, let me go back to the step. Um, which step was it that you said was the final opportunity for? Yeah, step three. You said that this was the final opportunity for repentance before the person being declared an outsider and removed from the assembly. I guess, how does that line up or weigh against, like, on a God level in in terms of, um, it seems like that from the, the text that on God's side that there was always an opportunity for repentance, like until your ah. death and um, you go to the grave, like like you, you have that phrase that you say, like, repent one day before you die, which you <laughs> yeah. know, shows that, like, it should be, like, today is all that you have. You don't know if you're going to die tomorrow, so you should promote repentance. So I guess I'm just trying to balance those two aspects scenarios yeah. within my mind. 
Ah, such a great question. So, okay, number one, when I say that it was the final opportunity, I guess I um, it's the final opportunity before you're going to get booted out the door. Obviously, once you've been booted out the door, you can still repent and then you're welcomed back in. So maybe I shouldn't have said final in that spot, but okay. So yeah, you're totally right there. Totally right. And that sort of fits the God scenario. However, you've actually brought up a really, really, really good point. And we've got a parable coming up that's going to talk directly to that. And so we're going to wait and let the scripture address it instead of me. Oh, man. Yeah, I know. No, it's good. You, you'll be glad because it, it's good. It's really good. All right. All right. So so in the story here, I mean, he wasn't done. They had some other things that follow uh, this part about, hey, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, right? That part. Okay. Number one, and I know I'm going to hurt some people's feelings or something, but this is not a spiritual warfare rallying cry. It's just not. This is directly related to the current context. If the little assembly of judges, elders of the church, whatever, decide that one must be banned, meaning whatever you bind, that you forbid, you forbid them from being a part of the assembly, God, in a sense, backs them up because their authority originates with God in heaven. Similarly, if the assembly leaders decide that one is not banned. And that would be maybe even they repent after they've been booted out or something like that. That means that they're loosing someone, they're permitting someone back into the assembly. Well, again, God backs them up because their authority originates with God in heaven. This is all, I mean, maybe not so much to us, but first century Judaism, this is all legal lingo. These judges are like a tiny little legislative and judicial branch for a myriad of community issues. So, so when it says binding and loosing, all it's saying is, hey, when you guys go through this process and you get to the point where you actually need to boot someone out or maybe let them back in or whatever, what all this is saying is you bind and loose and God's backing you up. And I'll show you more of this. Uh, it says where two of you agree All right, now, again, whatever you bind, most people try to turn that into a spiritual warfare rally cry. Wherever two of you agree, we try to turn this into, oh, this is a prayer thing. This is how we do prayer. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything bad about prayer or that there isn't power in agreeing together in prayer. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying we are in a specific context. Don't blow out of it. Stay in there. If two of you agree, a bait dean was comprised of three members. Therefore, if two agreed, that represented a majority vote. You see? So many, many try to read prayer into this and specifically about, you know, getting God to answer prayer or whatever. And I'm sure, you know, that there's that, that, that there's something to this. And I, all I'm saying is that's not what we're talking about here. It's just, you can say the same things you've always been saying, whatever you say, just don't go to this verse and say, this is the proof of whatever you think your prayer is about. That's all I'm saying. And then it says two or three are gathered. Again, this is, it's invoking that image of the bait Dean and that to, to state that they are gathered in his name. And this is maybe not quite so intuitive. They are gathered in his name is a way of saying that it's, Jesus's words or teachings 
or interpretations that are going to be used when attempting to make legal decisions. Well, gosh, Paul, what are you talking about? Well, he even continues and he says that little bit about, yeah, you know, when, when you're doing this, there I am among them, right? This is, a, this is a play on what they already understood in that day. The Jews believed that God, and let's just say the Shekinah, was with the judges in Israel as they judged according to his Torah. Well, where did they get this idea? Well, they derived it from the Psalms. Samuel, why don't you read Psalm 82, verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Okay. Now, this particular psalm is talking about something we haven't talked a whole lot about. You can go search out Michael Heiser and you'll hear all about the divine council and things like that. That would be fun. But the point of this isn't to talk about that. It's to say Judaism of the first century, of the first century understood this verse to mean that God was also with the earthly judges. The same way he was with the divine council, you know, like just in the heavenlies, he was with earthly judges too. And it's important when they were judging according to his words. And the phrase that they used was they were judging in his name or gathered in his name. So here, Jesus is stating that he would be with the judges who were judging according to his words, that is, in his name. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So, again, I'm not trying to, you know, just destroy everybody's ideas about spiritual warfare or prayer or whatever. All I'm trying to say is, these verses do not encourage or back up or endorse whatever it is you're saying about those things. This is all about that Matthew uh, 18 process. It's about judging and sin and forgiveness and all of those things. That's that's all I'm trying to get out. Yeah, it seems incongruous contextually to think about this section as a whole for Jesus to be talking about a scenario where someone sins and how to address that uh, individually, privately, and then later with a larger community, and then to go from that to a section about, you know, his presence among you when you're praying together. Like, it just, yeah. it seems to fit much more like what you're saying, that he's continuing that theme of, a, in a judicial sense, that God's presence will be with those who are trying their best to use God's oracles to determine what's the best situation to deal with a person in their community who is living outside of the standards that they want. Exactly. That's all we're saying. Yeah. Just let the text say what the text says. So Jesus says all of that stuff, and Peter, you know, he's following along. And so let's continue Matthew chapter 18, verses 21-22. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord... How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. 
Oh, Peter. Just speaking for all of humanity, isn't he? <laughs> I mean, he's sitting there and he's going, all right, so I'm, I'm, I'm tracking with you, Jesus. But is there a limit to this thing you're talking about? I mean, if I forgive someone seven times, isn't that kind of proving that they aren't serious and I can finally quit forgiving them? <laughs> isn't that human, Samuel? Isn't that the kind of things that people think and say? But Jesus answers clearly, no. In fact, the number of times you should forgive has no set limit. Oh, wait a second. I thought it was 77 times or 70 times 7 or something. No, Jesus is using the phrase 77 times or some translations say 70 times 7. It's just a way of saying it's a really, really big number, not a literal one. And also, this relates back to Genesis. If we were look at, uh, Samuel, read it. Genesis chapter 4, verse 24. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Yeah, and that phrase, 77-fold, is kind of like 70 times 7 or kind of like 77, right? That, that's why, you know, there's discrepancy or argument about what it really says right here in Matthew. But that verse was was never understood within Judaism as an exact number. It was It was interpreted as a big number, not a literal one. And so, in using this phrase, Jesus is highlighting something I think is just, it's so beautiful. The divine nature of forgiveness versus the human nature of revenge. Mm. However unlimited you may perceive the human capacity for revenge to be, and I don't know, I think it's pretty great. Mm. <laughs> But no matter how big you think it is, God's capacity for forgiveness is even greater. And we, as disciples, must imitate that. That is righteousness. That is the image of God. Jesus punctuates his meaning with a parable that we're about to get into, and that's the one that's going to actually speak to the question you had earlier, Samuel. Mm -hmm. Anything about Peter there? Yeah, I just, um, if we also take time to think about the meaning behind what certain wor uh, numbers were in Jewish culture. Mm -hmm. now, now, I don't understand why Peter would choose the number seven for his case, because like he seems to be approaching it as like seven is the limit, but in yeah. Jewish... Have I completed my responsibility? Yeah, and yeah. the seven means completeness or fullness. Um, yeah. Like, you know, it the, the earth was created in seven days. Like that shows that at the end of the seven days, God was completely satisfied in everything that he created. There was nothing more that he could have added or taken away from that. But Jesus plays on that. And whenever you double up on something, it, it, it like increases the magnitude of what that meaning means, yeah. I guess. Yeah. So when he says 77 times, it's like whatever completeness you're thinking about, it needs to be just like squared of that. Like there is no 
limit of the completeness or fullness of forgiveness that you're supposed to display to someone else. It should be like unmeasuring. Yeah, and a really, really good example of that is holy. When we say something is holy, it's it's separate, it's not mundane or profane or whatever. It's 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 normal. And every once in a while in the scripture you'll find a place where it says holy, holy, blah, 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 blah. And and that's a way of Exactly what you said. It's making it, whoa, this isn't just holy. This is like super duper holy, right? Whatever that means. But then what do we do when we want to talk about God? We say that he is mm. holy, holy. Oh. <laughs> right? Yep. Yeah. And so you go three times and it's like, oh, this is the immeasurable version of it. So there's like normal, then there's super duper, and then there's incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's that, that's that image. So yeah. All right, so let's get into the parable, because this is good. You're going to like it. Uh, again, we're continuing in Matthew chapter 18. This is verses 23 through 35. Woo, that's a long one. Hang with me, though. It's a good story. All right, says this. Therefore... The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe! So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. 
if anybody was really paying attention while I was reading, there should a little bit should have been a little bit of quaking in the boots going on. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> this is not a feel good parable. No. Huh? All right. Now here's something that you may not know. This parable is rich with allusions to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. These are Jewish holidays, festivals. We've talked about some of those things before. The basic idea is that in all of this, God, in a sense, settles accounts with Israel, the Jews, based on one's merits or shortcomings, uh, sins or uh, righteous deeds, you know, that kind of stuff. The main thrust of the festival is to seek forgiveness from God. But, and, and this is important, in preparation for a person to make that request, right? Oh God, I, I want you to forgive all of my sins. In preparation for that, they went through this process. I mean, it, literally, it was, it was over a month. But they would go through this process of forgiving others, seeking forgiveness from others when when they recognized they'd done something wrong in the past year. The Jews experienced this every single year. So for them, this parable should have been super easy for them to grasp. It's a little bit different from us because we've lost touch with that kind of uh, yearly reminder. So let's talk through it again and let's try and put ourselves sort of in the story. All right. So there's a servant. Now, that could be any one of us. So we'd probably just put ourselves as that servant would be kind of normal. So a servant comes before his king. Okay, that would be God. And the king, God, has decided that it's time to settle accounts. So in our big story, we'd be thinking of, oh, this is the time of the judgment. Judgment of sins that have been committed against God. That's going to be very important. But now this poor servant, he owes an unpayable amount. And just so you can get the idea, back in this day, they would consider money, one of the ways that they they tried to understand an amount of money was a day's wages or how many days wages it was, okay? This guy owed 150,000 years of wages. My gosh, how is that even possible? (laughs) Right, right. And why is it that we're trying to get the idea that it was immeasurable, okay? So the king, God, decides, you know what? I'm going to sell this servant and his family and his possessions off just so I can sort of recoup whatever I can. I'm just going to cut my losses. But this servant, again, it could be any one of us. You might even imagine it being you. This servant begs for mercy. He even promises, and we know it's unrealistic, but he promises he's going to find a way to pay back all that he owes. And we might think of that as repentance and even restitution, making things right when we've hurt others, you know, that kind of stuff. So this king. God has pity on this servant and he forgives all of that debt. 
He, he forgives all of the sins committed against God. That's pretty incredible, right? 150,000 years of wages is the way we're to think of that. So, but then, and this, this is where it gets interesting, the same servant then meets another servant who owes him a debt. Now, what's important about this, this is now sins committed against other men, right? So it's, it's man against man. And this guy owed him 100 denarii. And that is 100 days of wages. So you might think of that as like a third of your year. Not, not quite, but close enough, right? So the thing is, okay, that's probably a large amount. I'd hate to give up a third of my wages if I didn't have to every year, but whatever. It's a large amount, but it's totally payable. The second servant pleads just like the first one did. But the first servant, he, he doesn't care at all. No pity whatsoever. He throws the guy into debtor's prison. And in the big story, we would be thinking of this as Gehenna. Now, side note, when we talk about debtor's prison, that's something that came from Rome. This wasn't a Jewish thing. Now, obviously, they ended up getting involved in it, whatever, but the, the idea of debtor's prison is something that came from Rome. And the thing that's really crazy about it is, let's say that I was the guy. I owed a big debt, and somebody didn't give me patience, time, whatever. He threw me into debtor's prison. I no longer have any way to earn wages or anything. I can't do anything to pay off that debt. And so the burden now switches from me to anyone who actually cares about me. Others now have to try to pay off the debt and try mm. to get me out of prison. Yeah, I wondered that when you read through the stories. I'm like, uh, the text says uh, he refused and went in, went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when you said that, I'm like, how's he expect he's going to pay it whenever he's in prison? Like that doesn't right. even seem possible. Right. Yeah. And this this is nothing like the way God designed this stuff. This is totally a Roman thing. But yeah, that's what it looked like. So, and now this is cool. So you've got, you know, one believer or Christian and he's working with God and then there's two Christians and how that interaction happened. Well, now the other servants or the other believers, the other Christians, they're distressed. You might think of that as grief or anger, something like that. Well, they go and tell the king. They go tell God, this isn't right. Look what that guy did. The king, God, is shocked that the first servant, which again could be any of us, right? He's shocked that he had not shown mercy to others. And to be clear, this would be other believers. In the same way that the king or God had done for him. And so the king, God, is angry with that servant. And I'm just going to remind us again, it could be any one of us, right? God is angry. And check this out, Samuel. He repeals the forgiveness of the debt. Ouch. Yeah, the sins against God. He repeals that and he sends that servant to 
the jailers or the torturers would be a, another translation, which again, that's like Gehenna. Uh, he sends them to the torturers until all is paid. Now that paints an interesting picture. Does that mean when God repeals the forgiveness that you don't get to you know, experience any of the kingdom or the world to come at all? Maybe. Or maybe what this is telling us is, you know, when you are experiencing that forgiveness in the judgment, you don't have to experience Gehenna at all. Um, and then maybe there's this weird case where it's like, well, no, you are going to experience some of Gehenna, but then you're going to find your way still miraculously into the world to come or something like that. I don't, we don't know. That's all murky because God doesn't give us enough detail about all that stuff. So all I'm saying is you can take this little bit for what you want. The important part, though, Jesus is telling this story, and it's very clear that God repeals the forgiveness of debt. And so there are certain doctrines, theologies running around that don't sound anything like this. And I think you, if you believe that, you need to rethink because this stands against, you know, let's just say it, once saved, always saved, you know, that kind of stuff. So anyway, after all this though, what what are we talking about? Jesus is using this parable to make a very plain point. He is saying, if you do not forgive your heavenly Father will not forgive you. Does that sound familiar, Samuel? I mean, there's been other instances outside of forgiveness that Jesus uses that concept. Yeah, and he even did it with forgiveness. This was back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, uh, verse 15. He talks about it. Now, in this case, it's way more intense, you know, being sent to the torturers and, you know, everything has to be repaid. Yikes, all that. So it's tough. But it's that same concept. It's measure for measure. And we've seen this now. We've seen uh, Jesus use this example with forgiveness. We've seen him do it with mercy. We've seen him do it with judgment. Uh, there's probably others I'm not thinking of. But remember, this all started with Peter's question. Should I forgive up to seven times? And this parable emphasizes the fact that there is no practical limit, and he explains the reason. You have been forgiven far more than you will ever be challenged to forgive. Now, I, I'm i the one who just said that out loud, and even in, in my brain, there's part of me that's like, man, really? More than anyone would ever be challenged to forgive? Because some people I mean, their life, their story, it's pretty crazy, right? They've experienced things that we cannot even imagine. Now, the parable would suggest that even those crazy stories that we think we know, they have been forgiven more by God than they would ever have to forgive in this life. But do we really have to take the parable, you know, quite so literally on every point? You know, I think not. I mean, some things I like to, to take literally, and maybe it's wrong to do so or whatever. But what if it were true? What if, let, let's just paint the scenario. Uh, for your part, you've been so good that there's not a whole lot that God has to forgive you, okay? And others have been so bad to you 
that, believe it or not, you actually have to forgive more than God has to forgive you. So let's just pretend that that's true. What do we do? Well, it's still what God expects because that is still the image of God. God doesn't have to be doesn't have to for, uh, be forgiven of anything ever. And yet look at how willing he is to forgive, how much he's willing to forgive. So it's 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 the very thing that we should be aspiring to be. And I'm going to say it again, Christianity, it's not a crutch. It is a high high calling. And so now to to wrap this back around to your original question, Samuel, you can see how that opportunity to repent, that opportunity to obtain or receive forgiveness never, ever, 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 ever goes away, I guess we should say, until you die. Mm. Once you're dead, that's kind of like the finish line, I guess we could say, right? But we also have to understand that as as God is that way toward us, we have to be that way toward others, and it's our willingness to be that way toward others that actually plays a super important role in how God treats us. So it's all kind of tied in together, wrapped up together. So I don't know. I leave that with you. Did that answer any questions? Raise more questions? What what do you got, Samuel? Yeah, I think it helped a lot. And um, what was that part that you said a minute ago? Uh, Oh, yeah, your statement that you said the parable emphasizes the fact that there is no practical limit and explains the reason. You have been forgiven far more than you will ever be challenged to forgive. And then you said, for some people, this is a crazy statement. I think that that gets to more of the heart of our discussion last week about reckless love in terms of thinking about God and his capacity to forgive and show mercy and love to his creation, specifically humanity. Like it, it feels outside of our human logic to understand that kind of capacity, especially within like, you know, it's, it's a, a right sense of justice God gave us. That's an aspect of his character, a sense of justice, because yeah. we think about what we have done or what other people have done, and that sense of justice is evoked, and we're like, no, like, I don't deserve that. They don't deserve that, but, like, that just shows the majesty and the grandeur of God that, like, his ability to see beyond that it just defies all logic and understanding and it's just crazy so um yeah it is it's amazing stuff it's amazing stuff and if you could just i mean i can't do it but but you sort of get the idea you if you could somehow recount everything that we have covered so far in this podcast it is it is so much more than most of us will ever really be able to to put into practice, put into action, and yet it is the only reason that we live as Christians. And we got a long way to go. In fact, Samuel, you know what? This is an important moment. You've been waiting for this. Yeah, I want you to think about something. Think about maybe like uh, 
New Year's Eve parties when they're getting ready to drop the ball. Or maybe like a ticker tape parade when war heroes are coming home. Or, I don't know, what, what, any big celebration that you can think of, whatever it is, we are about to exceed that by like 150,000 years worth of wages. You know what I'm saying? We are now officially halfway through the Gospels. <laughs> that deserves some simulated rounds of applause right now. Oh, man. And the thing is, if you listen to this podcast and you've made it this far, whew, you are a gentleman and a scholar, and there is a place reserved for you in heaven. That's all I got to say. <laughs> Coming from the man himself. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we did it. We're halfway, so, you know, we got a, a ways to go. And there's yeah. so much good stuff coming. And actually, we're not that far away from getting to the last six months of Jesus's life. So we're about halfway, and, you know, we're sort of in the area of, call it two and a half years of his ministry. We talked some about his childhood and all that. Um, but this last half is going to talk about a much shorter period of time. So it's kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. It's motivating to keep going forward for sure. We've yeah. we've made it this far. Can't stop now. That, it's all downhill from here. <laughs> <laughs> Until we get all to right. Acts and all the letters. Oh, buddy. We got so much good stuff coming. It's great. But anyway, we should stop so that people feel like, you know, we're not wasting their time at the halfway point. Okie dokie. Oh! Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Talk to you again soon.